0: Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6, and let's read 1 Samuel chapter 6 in its entirety, and then we'll come back and take a look at it. Remember, uh, before we do that, that the Philistines came against the Israelites in the town of Aphek, they had a battle. And the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the battle against the Philistines. The, the Jews at the time, they, they knew what an important uh, thing the Ark of the Covenant was to them. It was the very presence of God with them. And, and, and isn't it true that if we're not careful, the thing that we believe in or the thing that we, you know, God's presence is, you know, the Shekinah glory was above that Ark at, at different times in Israel's history. But we can sometimes get so focused on the object itself rather than the God of the object. And there is the problem with humanity, not just for the Jews, but also for all of us. We have a tendency to, to look at the thing that God uses rather than God himself. And because God we can't see with our eyes, we can see an ark, And I think that's where the hang-up is for most of us. Unbeliever and believer, we like to see things But faith is the substance of of things not yet seen, but the evidence of things things hoped for, but the evidence of things not yet seen. I think I got that messed up, but you you understand what I mean. (laughs) We don't need necessarily to see to believe, because seeing is not necessarily believing. In fact, you have to believe without seeing. Because how can you know that he is there if you don't believe without seeing? Because none of us have seen Jesus in the flesh like the apostles did. So we have to believe by faith. And so the Israelites brought the ark into battle with them, thinking that it was like a lucky charm, a a rabbit's foot, and the ark gets taken away from them. The worst thing that could have happened. National tragedy. (laughs) The ark gets taken and the Philistines they send it to Ashdod first, and we, we saw this in chapter five they send it to there were five different uh, cities within the um, within the uh, five different Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, and Gath. and so the first place they send it is the place where their god was located, where the shrine or the temple of Dagon was, this Philistine uh, Phoenician deity of. Of fertility and it was a uh, an idol half man half uh, fish and they bring it into their temple the temple you know the Dagon falls down before Dagon or Dagon I'm sorry falls down before the ark and and the and it finally it breaks the second time and then God strikes them with with all kinds of plagues boils literally hemorrhoids isn't that nice He strikes them, and they send the thing down to uh, Gath. From that point, they send it down to Gath. And then finally, it breaks out on them too. So this plague, some even think it might have been the bubonic plague. They send that to Ekron, another Philistine city. The the plague breaks out on them too. And so they they said, enough with this thing. We're going to send it to Beth Shemesh. They set it on a cart and put two milk cows, hook it up that had never been yoked before, and they put their calves away from them, and, they, and by God's providence, they, they go on the road and they take it right to Beth Shemesh, people of Beth Shemesh, um, look inside the ark. God wipes some of them out because they weren't supposed to do that, violating the word of God. And so we come to chapter 6. And it says, now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And so, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should tend it or send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. And then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we will return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors, images of your rats that ravage the land. Notice the rats are a significant part of this. Because in the 14th century, rats were actually one of the the main reasons, the main spreaders of the bubonic plague in Asia and Europe. Fleas and rats. It was also transmitted airborne, but notice that they were ravaging the land, and he says, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty works among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows, which had never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them, and then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering, in a chest by its side, then send it away and let it go. And watch. And if it goes up to the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. By chance. Hmm. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth and went along the highway, lowing as they went. I can almost see the picture, can't you, in your head? I mean, having been to Israel three times now, I, I, we've been to this area, and, and, I, and I can just see the contour of the land, and I can see the cart, and I can see the ark on it, and I can see the little box with the golden hemorrhoids and the, the golden rats on it, and I can see them just lowing as they go, whoo, whoo. you know, it looks like a milk commercial. And there they go the cows headed straight for the road to Beshemesh and went along the highway lowing as they went and they did not turn aside to the right hand or the left and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beshemesh so they're following afterwards now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they lifted their eyes they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it and so then they took then the then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beshemesh and stood there a large stone was there so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the gold articles, and put them on the large stone. And then the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings, made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. And so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to the Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, and again, here are the five major cities of the Philistines. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats. I like that. Golden rats. You guys had dinner yet? Golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the, Lord, as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But notice what happened there. He struck the men of Beth Shemesh. Why? Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjeth jearim saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it with you with you. Excuse me. So let's go back to the, the first verse here. A very interesting chapter. Um It says that the Lord uh that the Ark was with them for seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests, the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. Now these are these men who were priests and diviners, they were um priests within their own false idolatrous. Worship system. Okay, these weren't priests like Levites or anything like that. These were their own priests uh, from Dagon and the many gods. The Philistines were polytheistic, which means that they worship many gods. It wasn't just one; they worship many. And uh, can you imagine the the how difficult that must be to appease so many different deities? I mean, there was a god for everything, and uh, anything that happens in the heavens, anything that happens with drought or anything. You start worshiping that God a little more and you start screaming a little louder and a little harder. And can you imagine what an awful thing that is? Because now everything is su- suspicious or you know, you're know, you superstitious of everything that happens because if something happens to you, it must be because the God was angry at me and I better find out why. But that's the way the Philistines were. Notice in verse 3, they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it away empty. Notice that in their superstition... That they treat the God of Israel, Jehovah, like he's one of their polytheistic gods. Like he's some, somehow he's uh, on the same level as their other gods. And the truth of the matter is, there's no one like God. There's no one like Jehovah God. He is the creator of all things. He made the heavens. The heaven of heavens can't even contain him, the Bible says. And it says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity eternity. He inhabits eternity. that I can't even fathom eternity. Why? Because, and I don't think you can either. Can anybody here fathom eternity? We've lived in time our whole life. All of our ancestors lived within this physical property called time, and yet he's speaking about something that's completely different, something that's completely away, away from our understanding. It's not even just an absence of time, but it's a quality. There's a quality about it that's so much better especially with him. There's a quality, but it's without end. It never ends. And if you think that it ever ends, it it just, it never ends. I don't know about you, but I really am looking forward to heaven. I'm looking forward to even being on this earth during the millennial reign in my new body. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you, too. Looking forward to having dinner over at your house. Maybe we'll have manicotti. Get it, manna? All right, whatever. But notice their superstition took got the best of them. And instead of giving glory and honor to this one who really put down their God, have you heard that saying, my God is bigger than your God? I think Jehovah God, the God of the Jews, pretty much made small work of their God, Dagon. Right? And he does to any other gods that would take the, have the audacity to rise against him. All power belongs to him. No one like him. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he beyond anything you can possibly imagine? Isn't his love perfect? Isn't his grace wonderful that we all get to enjoy? And hopefully we'll be the, 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 not only the beneficiaries of that love, compassion, and grace, forgiveness, all of that, and we can be a conduit of that to everyone around us. Everyone, right? Right? But instead of this, they, they, they could have just repented, you know, after they saw their God fall flat on his face. If I were them, I'd say, you know what, I don't know who this God is, but I'm putting away Dagon. I'm going to serve this one. And they had the opportunity, but such is the heart of man. You get into a habit of things, and you just continue doing them. And it's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, this is a verse that we know very well. What does Jeremiah, what does God say? that he's speaking through his prophet, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's the question that God asks, and he answers the question in verse 10 of that same chapter. He says, I, the Lord, who can... The heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, there is one who can know it, and he does know it. He is, he says, I, the Lord, I search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Notice... The fruit of his doings. God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows all things. You cannot hoodwink God. There is no power that can say, Aha, I got you. There's no way. It's not happening. Try playing chess with the man who's already seen the endgame. Who knows all the moves. And no matter what you do, you you could have been schooled by Kasparov himself. And God will say, Go ahead. Make, take your best shot. I'll even close my eyes. I'll even go in another room. You know, you can turn the board around. You can mix the pieces around. Just do it. Go ahead. I already know. That's the God we serve. He cannot be undone, he cannot be thwarted. His plan will not be thwarted, no matter what it is. If it's his perfect will, guess what? There's nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath that can stop God. He is a loving locomotive. Amen? (laughs) And I love that. A locomotive of love. That's what he is. He's coming to a town near you. Hopefully he's already been there. He's blown the whistle. But notice that Notice that they believed that if they did these things, that God would heal them, if they put the tumors and the gold images, if they did those things they, they had a, had a even a, even in their idolatry, they had a, a belief, a faith of some kind. you know sometimes pagans can have more faith in God than those who purport to believe in him, and that 's really shameful when that happens. Remember what that happened with Jesus? In Matthew chapter 8, remember there was a centurion who had a servant who needed to be healed, and the, servant, or the centurion answered the Lord, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now remember, this servant, this centurion, is a Roman citizen. He's a Gentile and he's speaking these things and no doubt around a bunch of Jews. And here's Jesus marveling at this man. and He says, "Um, Jesus, when he heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed. Remember, he said it to those who followed him, which probably were Jews. He said, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found so great faith. No, not even in Israel. And I bet that really hurt them. But again, was it truth? It was truth. The truth sometimes stings, doesn't it? The truth will often sting. When God throws a truth out, usually somebody, you'll hear a bark. When you throw a stone in the middle of a pack of dogs, one of them gets hit. And it stings. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love the dog. But that truth will wound a little bit. But that wounding should draw us closer to him rather than repel us further away from him, right? That's God's intention. That's his heart. There's no other way around it. I won't do anything unless I'm wounded. Unless I'm brought to an end of myself, I very rarely will do anything spiritual. But it's when I'm crushed. It's when I'm aware of my sin. It's when I've blown it. Those are the times that I'm listening really intently. But when everything is going fine, very More often than not, I go about my merry way. Can anybody say amen to that? I mean, we don't like to say amen to that, but that's human nature, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's what happened. But notice what he said. He says, I have not found so great a faith, not even in Israel. And Jesus didn't even need to go there. He just said, your son, your servant is healed. And he found out that same day that he was. But these... Philistines they had enough faith to believe that if they just put this trespass offering in that somehow God would heal them. I think that's remarkable even in their even in their um, even in the place where they were at spiritually. Now we go on to verse 4, notice what it said, then they said, "What is the what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him?" And they answered five golden tumors, literally hemorrhoids. When this thing happened, when this plague came upon them, Many believe it was the bubonic plague because the bubonic plague had you would develop boils in your private areas and also under your armpits for some reason, huge ones. I mean, I'm talking like golf ball, baseball size sometimes and they are very, very painful. So this was not an easy thing for them to go through. But as a pagan culture, whatever hurts them, that's what they put their worship into. And so instead of just you know, they could have just asked the Lord to forgive him. You know, they could have just got on their faces and say, Lord, we repent of our idolatry. All these gods mean nothing. We bow to you alone. Lord, please heal us. And you know what? I bet the Lord would have said, oh, wonderful. And I bet he would have done it. I bet he would have done it if they would have cried out to him. But they didn't. So they put five golden tumors, five golden rats... According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of, the, of you and your lords. Notice they put not only the, 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 the cause of it, but also the effect. Does that make sense? The cause and the effect. What was the cause of it? Or what was the spreader of it? The rats. And the tumors were the result of it. So the cause of it and the effect of it, they make gold images out of those things because they know no better so they're like, we better cover all of our bases. So they do that. And because they were polytheistic, they wanted to make sure that if they thought they had offended any one of those gods, that they would do whatever they could to appease him. But superstition was something that really ruled them. Superstition is actually a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, uh, the fear of the unknown. It's also a trust in magic or chance or a false conception of causation. That's what superstition is. And our country is filled with superstition. I was brought up with superstition. You know, the black cat, the number 13, Friday the 13th. You know, don't step on a crack. You make your mother, you know, break your mother's back. Um, You know, if a bird hits a window, it's bad luck. You know, there's all kinds of don't go underneath a ladder, that's bad luck. And, you know, knock on wood. All these things. And in every culture, every culture in the world, and I've been over to Bulgaria, I've been over to Israel, they all have their different superstitions and it's embedded in our upbringing how many times you say good luck to somebody not that it's a sin to say good luck i mean and that's not going to send anybody to hell right you know rejecting christ to the end is going to send us to hell if we're not born again but saying those things aren't going to send you to hell or anything but you know what i've often caught myself thinking differently about the things that are very prevalent in our culture Instead of saying good luck, I say the Lord bless you. (laughs) You know, that's really more accurate. That's really what I, because luck has nothing to do with it. Luck has nothing to do with it. It has nothing. And I believe, this is my opinion, I believe that we don't honor the Lord when we hold to such superstitions. Because for the child of God, nothing is left to chance. There's no such thing as good luck or coincidence, there's God incidents where we find, we find ourselves in certain places and we're amazed at how the Lord could have orchestrated that. I can't tell you how many times in my life that's occurred. Where I've been someplace, at the right place, at the right time, and if I had only brushed my teeth three seconds more or less, that morning I would have missed the opportunity. That blows my mind. Does that blow your mind? That means that my life, everything, even when I'm not even thinking about it, because the Lord knows. And if he really wants me to meet something or to be in touch with someone or something to happen, believe me, he can say, well, Rob's taking his time. He's not really thinking about anything. Well, I'm just going to delay them a little bit because i got a rendezvous. And I tell you what, that's really amazing to consider Because it happens, and it happens too much for it to be coincidence. There is no coincidence. There is only God-incidence. Amen? So be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. But superstition is really a misplaced trust. It's not trusting God, and really what it does is it exposes unbelief in our hearts when when we say that the cause is something else other than God himself. We have to trust him. Everything that comes in and out of our life, whether it's good, positive, or indifferent, whatever it may be, it is all by the hand of a loving God who knows all things. So don't be discouraged, even when you go through difficult things. Why me, God? I mean, I've known people in this fellowship. There's one one lady who sits over here usually when she comes on Thursday nights, and she's been through the ringer. I mean, why is it? That God would allow, you know, three family members within a year to to pass away, including her husband. God, what, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Do you love this woman at all? And I can almost hear God saying, Rob, you have no idea. You have no idea what I'm doing. I'm doing things so deep in her heart that you can't understand it. It's her time. You follow me and you stay on the course, but what I've got to do in this life is precious to me. And she doesn't even realize it now, but I'm going to use this for the good. And then we have to say, God, this is your business. I need to stand by and let you be God. We don't like that. We like to tell God what to do. We like to tell him, give him better ideas. Well, Lord, if you really want for me to get from here to there, the the, the closest place between two points is a straight line. And the Lord's saying, but oh, you can't receive the... If I get you there to that place quicker, Mr. Kellogg, you're going to miss out on the journey. The ends don't justify the means. He's more concerned about the meandering that, that I have to go through, not because he is not faithful, but because I'm learning i got to make decisions, and ultimately he's going to get me to that place, but it's going to be decisions that I make, either foolishly or prayer-led, and he's going to be doing something in my heart, and that is what it's all about, folks. In fact, I think the journey is more just as important as the final destination. Because if I get to the final destination without the journey, I'm going to be there premature. I'm going to be like a a baby that's born a few months too early. Does that make sense? There's something in the waiting. There's something in it. That cannot be done any other way. There's no Cliff's Notes. There's no shortcut. It has to be done that way. And God knows what he's doing. There is no other way around it. And yet, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't apologize about about, um, superstition in the lives of people, even in the Bible. Not necessarily the apostles or the major characters of the Bible. But even, you know, like the shadow of Peter passing by in the book of Acts chapter 5. There was, uh, people became superstitious that if he just passed by and the shadow came across me, I'd be healed. So, you know, I'd roll out. If I'm a quadriplegic, I would roll out into the street. And maybe when the sun comes down, you know, around 4 o'clock, i got to roll out in front of him and get all dusty. And maybe, just maybe, the shadow of Peter would come upon me. Or what does it say in Acts 19? A handkerchief or an apron from the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? Oh, let me get on my hanky. I got kind of a sneeze here. Oh, oh, here you go. Oh, thank you, brother. Is that what healed the people, or was it faith in the God who Paul believed in? See, God even allows these things, right? The men throwing Jonah overboard was it because they were superstitious? Somebody made God mad. Somebody made one of the God mad. One of the gods mad. Did you make Poseidon mad? Oh, you've got to go overboard. We've got to get rid of you. What about Paul when he was on the island of Malta and the viper struck out from the, from the fire and fastened to his hand? Probably some kind of venomous beast, the Bible tells us. In Florida, I knew about venomous beasts. I used to live on in Pine Island. And back in the early, you know, middle 70s, you know, it was fairly uninhabited. I mean, there was a few people. But it was the tropics. I mean it was a real island and you get to it by two bridges. My grandfather had a wood pile and it was had coral snakes. He's out there killing coral snakes every other day. Coral snakes. These are like really bad news. Like one bite, forty five minutes, you're in glory, kind of thing. Right? But thank God I never saw any of those. But anyway, there was a lot of uh, superstition. Even their ships had Castor and Pollux on the front bust of the, of the boat. You've seen that before. Or sometimes it was St. Timothy or the head of St. Timothy on the front of a ship for good luck. And they did these things. And all throughout history, we see that. And even today, in sports and music, there are uh, things that people do. Did you hear about this? The Detroit Red, Wing, Red Wings had a legend of the octopus. Have you heard of this? Even in sports today... It started when a Red Wings fan threw one of the critters, an octopus, onto the ice during a playoff game in 1952. It represented the eight wins needed to secure the Stanley Cup during the area. So after the incident, the Red Wings swept the playoffs, and the ice crew at Joe Louis Arena had been dealing with the mass, the mass, excuse me, ever since. So that the fans were starting to throw octopus or octopi out on the. Uh, thing and because it, it helped them win the game they thought they had a causation, a false causation, right? They thought that it was the octopus. So they did that. Michael Jordan, even early in his career. In his early early in his career he wore slightly longer shorts than other players because he needed to make room for his lucky North Carolina shorts, which he wore under his uniform throughout his career. So all kinds of these little things like this. You know, even Salvador Dali, the famous painter, he considered himself to be very superstitious and carried around a little piece of of Spanish driftwood to ward off evil spirits. Sort of like a talisman to ward off evil spirits. And you see this kind of thing in music. I mean, music performers today, they all have their little ritual that they do before they go on stage. It's crazy what people do. And they put that, whatever success they might have, all it takes is once. For, for something good to happen, and all of a sudden, a superstition begins. And God will often allow a superstition to test whether you're going to trust him or not. He'll often even allow a false prophet to come. He did this with Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, notice what it says. I'm just going to read you the first five verses. A similar concept here, but I think you'll get the point. You'll get the point. God said to them, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. God says you shall not listen to them to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So shall you put away the evil from your midst. It's the same kind of idea with superstition. And we're a, a, a country filled with superstition. Be, you know, think of it. Think of all the things that happened. You know? And as I have grown in the Lord, I've started to identify these things. And I just started to, little by little, reject them. Because my life is not an accident. Things that happen in my life are not an accident. And they're not an accident for you either. And you don't have to worry about a black cat crossing your path. In fact, you can be on your way to a very dangerous job, a dangerous job you could be remember those guys who were in the 30s or whenever it was they were building the the, the skyscrapers in uh, new york city and they're up there on the those big girders and they're having lunch you've seen those pictures a worker like that could you know if he's a born-again believer he could be down on his way to the work job he could be holding a bunch of black cats in his arms he could hold them in his arms put them down and then go up on that girder with great confidence Because there's nothing that can thwart God's plan. So, notice the five golden tumors, the five golden rats. It's interesting that they say that it was upon the five lords of the Philistines, even though this account that we have only seems to record three of them. We hear about Ashdod which is in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. We hear of Gath, which is in chapter 5, verse 8. We also hear of Ekron, chapter 5, verse 10. But we don't hear of Ashkelon, and we don't hear of um, of uh, Gaza. But evidently, it happened there as well. And I wonder, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, remember the ark was passing around, and there came a point in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8 that they, um, that they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And, and when they get together like this, what is basically happening? It's spreading. <laughs> right? We don't hear about Gaza. We don't hear about Ashkelon, you know, the ark going there. But as they held this meeting and they all got together, what happens probably when they were together? The bubonic plague or the plague, whatever it is, starts to spread. So in verse five, it says, therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. You shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. He says, why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Remember that in Exodus? God was bringing judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. And every single time that their God was defeated, whether it was the God of the Nile, the God of the land, whatever it was, they, instead of, hardening, instead of giving their heart over and allowing God's people to go free, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there came a point when he began to harden his heart so much, there's, it's recorded for us two or three times in those chapters, that Pharaoh hardened, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, there's a time when we can harden our hearts so much, God says, is that what you really want? Is that what you really want? Is that the attitude that you really want? And God will allow your heart to be hard because you choose to make your heart, your heart hard. He's always there trying to soften that with oil, like the song we sing, soften my heart with oil. By the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is able to do that. But they didn't want anything to do with it, and their heart became hard. And so these diviners and these priests of the, of this, uh, of the Philistines, why are you hardening your hearts like Pharaoh? When he did mighty things among them, they, and, but they did, not, they did not let the people go that they might depart. Now therefore, verse 7, make a new cart and take two milk cows that have never been yoked. Have you ever tried to yoke two cows that have never been yoked before? They don't really like it too much. It takes the Spirit of God to put a yoke on two cows that have never been yoked. God has to be in control. It's sort of like getting on a bull for the first time that's never been broken. Try that sometime. You know, get, get, your, uh, get your spurs on. Get your, you know, your leather uh, chaps on and your cowboy hat and get that toothpick sticking out like that. Hop on that beast and guess what? You're in traction because that thing is going to throw you several hundred yards away where no one will see you ever again. <laughs> Right. But they put this yoke on these on these two cows, and, and then to make matters worse, they take their calves from them, their young ones, which is kind of a problem. And then they said, Take the ark of the Lord and set it on the on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, then send it away and let it go. And so you know, and this is interesting because this is where the children of Israel really learned a really bad example. Because we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Remember when David, uh, you know, nearly 100 years after the event that we're looking at tonight, at least, at least 70 or 80 years, maybe 90, close to 100. David finally, when the ark rested in Abinadab's house there in, in um and kirjath Jiram. David decides, you know, I'm king. I'm going to go and grab the ark and bring it back in. And so he does. But the last time they hear of the ark prior to that, the, the big noise about what had happened, how the ark got there, ultimately was that it was brought on a wooden cart. So David is thinking to himself, you know what? We can do this even quicker. We can get this done before lunch. Let's just get this done, right? So they put the, they put the ark on a new cart. They have the animals drive it. David's dancing. Music's blaring. It's great, wonderful. And Ohio, the thing hits a, a pothole in the road. And Ohio and Uzzah, these two men, were there next to the cart, and the ark's about to fall, so Ohio reaches up, or Uzzah, I'm sorry, to secure the ark and the Lord smotes him right there. Brings him to death. So David, they took the ark and they put it into Obed Edom's house, not too far away, and there it stayed for three months before David would attempt it again. But the next time, he knew what had went wrong. He says to the the, you can read this in um, uh, certainly Second Samuel chapter six, but also in First Chronicles chapter fifteen, the first thirteen verses. It talks about now he told them to go do it the right way. The Levites were supposed to carry that ark. So they learned this idea of bringing the ark in. And boy, worship, when it's convenient, really isn't worship at all. Because if you do the right thing in the wrong way, it doesn't matter, does it? You know, the ends don't justify the means. The means are just as important as the end result. The end result was get the ark into Jerusalem, where David was. But the means was very important to God. The means, folks, is so important. Never try to circumvent to make things quicker. If God has you going a different way, you'd better be obedient because you're going to go back to kindergarten again for remedial courses. This is an interesting thing. When I was in kindergarten, this is a true story, I went through kindergarten and I was going to advance on to first grade. But guess what? They told me that I was immature and that I wasn't ready for first grade. I had to actually repeat kindergarten again. It's a true story, because whenever my teacher would turn her head, I would run out the door, and she wouldn't even know that I was gone, or she didn't know where I went. And I would play in the park across the street where I lived all day until the kids came home from school. And I was even smart enough to get my friend, John, who lived across the street. He had some papers, you know, the papers that you get when you're drawing and doing things, circling different colors and stuff. He would give me some of his papers, and I would look like I went to school. And I did this for a number of times until they finally caught up with me And then I was busted. I was immature. I had to return back to kindergarten again. Kindergarten, folks. So, but notice verse 8 back in our text. It says (laughs) that the ark of the Lord, they set it on the cart. They put the articles of gold in it for the trespass offering. And did did you know that God never required gold as a trespass offering? To the Jews, God had a very prescribed thing. We won't go into it tonight, but in Leviticus chapter 5, if you look at the first six verses, there was a very specific prescribed thing for a trespass offering. And of course they didn't know because they were pagans. They were doing the best that they could, but God never required the gold. They could have kept it for themselves. All they had to do was get the thing out of there and, and give it back to Israel, and they all would have been, probably would have been just fine. And they probably would have healed quicker if they gave their heart to the Lord and repented of their deeds, right? But God cannot be appeased by gold or things that are valuable to a man. What does it say in Psalm 51? You did not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. See, God is more concerned and interested about true devotion and repentance. He's more interested in that than anything we can possibly do anything we can possibly do. You can read uh, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verses 11 through 20, and it kind of uh, brings that even more into, into view. But notice what they said in verse 9. And watch, if this cart with the oxen, you know, the milk cows attached to it, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then. He has done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us and it happened to us by chance. Do you see the if-then statement that's there? Underline those two words. And notice it says, and watch, if. Circle the word if. And then after uh, after Beth Shemesh, circle then. If. (laughs) If it goes up to the road. Here they are, this chance. If it goes, then. So they're already... a. Assuming a cause for this. If this happens, then this is what it means. It would have been better if they would have just obeyed the Lord and they could have bypassed the whole thing. But notice that God gives these conditional statements to his people too. I call them if-then statements. They're conditional statements. It means that God says, if you do these things, then I will do this. Sometimes God has non-conditional or unconditional statements where he tells Abraham, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing you can do to make it happen. This is my promise to you. I'm going to make of you a a great nation. I'm going to make of you uh, your, your, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea, like the stars in heaven for multitude. That's an unconditional promise. But there were other promises where God says to the children of Israel, if you do this, then I will do this. And there's our responsibility. There's our obedience. There's our devotion. And it's always good to obey the Lord. Obey him, even when it, it, it hurts you. Obey him, even if you don't like what's going to happen. Because believe me, the harder thing to do is to be obedient. It is always easy to do the wrong thing. It's easy. You don't have to think about it. You're born with it inside of you. This old nature that's within you is so willing to just do the, the easy thing. It's easy. Just let it slide, man. Just forget about it. Everybody's doing it. I mean, what's your problem? Are you holier than thou now? Have you heard anybody tell you that? (laughs) Doing the right thing always is more difficult. It's always going to cost. And believe me, that is worship in itself. But there's no such thing as luck or chance. It says, then the men did so, verse 10, they took the two cows, they hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. They set the ark of the Lord on the cart, the chest with the gold rats and the images. And then verse 12, the cows headed straight on the road to Beth Shemesh, went along the road, and the the Philistines followed right behind until it got to Beth Shemesh. Can you just see this group of men, you know, following this ark with the cows? I mean, you, you can picture it in your mind. And they're just going, wow, what, what, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, these are cows that have never been yoked. And their, cow, their, 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 their young ones are locked up. And they care about those young ones. God put it in them to do that. And yet now they are going without them to a place that we didn't even hit them in the rear end with a switch. We just put the thing on there and hooked them up. And they just started walking. Miracle of miracles. Lowing as they go. Content. Mm, mm. It was a divine test. Now the people of Bathshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They lifted their eyes, saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it, of course. It was one of the greatest things that, you know, for them to have their ark back after being lost to their enemy for seven months, right? Ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth and stood there, and a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering. Well, that sounds kind of like a bad deal for the cows. And the Levites took the Ark of the Lord and, they, and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold. They put them on the large stone. Then the men of Bashimish offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day. And, and who knows if these men were really Levites or not, so they're probably not doing things exactly the right way either, but now at least the Ark is in, in Israel's hands. It says, verse 16, So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day, probably wiping their forehead and going, Finally we got that thing out of our out of our out of our way. These are the golden tumors, the golden hemorrhoids. That's kind of nice to say. Let's say it again just because it's fun. Golden hemorrhoids. Golden hemorrhoids, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. Notice verse 18. And the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords. We already mentioned those five cities. Both fortified cities, country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark. Notice verse 19, though, a minor chord is struck because the men of Beth Shemesh, and you know, honestly, I would be one of these guys that was struck down by God because the curiosity would kill me, literally. Uh, if, If I knew that the ark was there, in fact, if I was... If I was mischievous and I went to Israel and we went down into the underneath, you know, we we make this, we go down what they call the rabbi's tunnel and there's all kinds of little places where you can sneak off and get lost underneath the Temple Mount. I'd love to do that just for fun. But then to find the ark, maybe covered up somewhere, wouldn't that be nice? And then just because I'm a Gentile, I know better, but, you know, I would have this desire to want to go peek, to open it up. It'd be like Indiana Jones where my flesh starts to melt off my face, you know. I'd be one of those guys that would be toast. But I'd be in glory. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I'd be one of those people that would want to do that. But that's what they did. They looked inside the ark, and he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter and Because uh, only Aaron and his sons, uh, which were of the Kohathites, they were to cover the articles in the Holy of Holies. Um, later on, when the, when, the, um, when the priesthood would get set up under David, and it would be more um, official, they would actually be the ones that would cover these things. And, and there would be another group of Koathites that would move it when it was time to move. But they weren't even allowed to peek in it. Not even, the, not even Aaron and his sons, they weren't allowed to open that ark. Once it was done, it was done. They weren't even to look inside of it. So much less these gentlemen who probably weren't even Levites themselves, perhaps. Or if they were, they weren't Levites of the Kohathites. They weren't high priests, like, but they weren't even supposed to look inside. And so God is serious about these things. We tend to think that God says something and he really doesn't mean it. Or that we don't have to obey him he let the the Philistines get away with putting the thing on an ark because they didn't know any better, but the people of God knew better, and therefore, too much is given, much is required. Right? When we know to to do good and we don't do it, it's evil, isn't it? It's sin to us, and that's really what it was for them. And so, you can look in Numbers chapter four, uh, verses fifteen through seven, fifteen through twenty, actually. Numbers chapter four. 15 through 20, and that really talks about that it was only the Levites that were to do those things, to carry those items and to do those things. And notice here it says that he struck, God struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, there's a problem here because in some versions of the Bible, specifically the NIV and a few Hebrew manuscripts, there's a copious error, they think, maybe. And some believe that it's only 70 people that were put to death here. However, um, in some Hebrew manuscripts, 50,070 is still there. But I don't know, I kind of, you know, because there's some question about whether there were that many people in that that small little town. And it could be. It's easy to uh, make a little mistake of the pen. Literally, one little twist of a pen can mean 50,070 or just 70 Remember, the original manuscripts were flawless. But where these little nuances come in is when they translate from those original sources, which we don't have really any more of those um, original manuscripts. I mean, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls and some New Testament fragments left, but the Old Testament, like in 1 Samuel, we don't have any that are extant, that are available to us today to look at, as far as I know. And so when they made those copies, just one little switch of the pen, so it's really not the... The word of God itself, it's the, it's the human element after the fact that's copying it, right? But either way, it doesn't really matter. Does it really matter whether it was 70 people or 50,070? doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, granted, you don't want that many people to die, but it says it was a great slaughter. So I don't have a hard time with it just being 50 and it being a great slaughter. But if you only have 20 people in your town, maybe 50 is a great slaughter. <laughs> it means you had some visitors and they died too, <laughs> right? So we don't really know, but it really doesn't matter too much. And I love the fact that the Lord is no respecter of persons. Whether it's, you know, his own people. He's not going to show favoritism. Verse 20, it says in the... And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, before this Jehovah God, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they had a healthy respect, a healthy reverence for it as well. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord, now come down and take it up with you. And so that's exactly what happens. And it stays there in the house of Abinadab for, um, we're going to see in the next chapter that it says that it was 20 years. But it was actually more like 100 years. Because there's probably been another, another 20 years before, it would, before Saul would be king. Saul was king for how many years? 40 years. And then after Saul, there was David. When did he get coronated? When he was 30. So now we're looking at 70 or 80 years right there. And it was after that that David went and got the ark from Obed-Edom, or from Abinadab's house. I'm sure generations had had the ark in their house, and David decides to go get it. Does it wrong the first time? We read that. Then he brings it out, and the Lord smites Uzzah. They don't get it very far, and they're like, "Boy, we better stop and refigure out what we're going to do here." So they put it in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. They put it in his house. And it was there for three months while David regrouped and thought about what had happened. But isn't it wonderful how how gracious God is in spite of all these things? I love that I'm a recipient of his grace, aren't you? Because you know what? Grace is what changes people. The grace of God. The law of God doesn't necessarily get the job done. The law of God brings fear. But I love it when you're fearful and God puts his hand on you. Remember when the prophets, when they would come across an angel, even an angel of God. This happened to Jeremiah. It happened to Ezekiel. It happened to John, John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos. He was completely blown away, standing in the front and in the presence of an angel, which in his likeness, was very unlike anything he'd ever seen before. And the natural inclination is to worship that because even an angel would blow us away in this room. All of us would be tempted. If an angel appeared, we would be completely blown away at the presence of this beauty and this awesome effulgence. But he would put his hand and say, Don't worship me. You worship God. Isn't that what they said? to these three brothers, these three prophets, don't worship me, I'm just a worship God, worship him. But it's interesting, too, just to see how in this chapter we see so much superstition in the lives of, of the pagans. And even in, um, all throughout the world, just something to think about. Again, you know, as you go about your day tomorrow... You know, some of these things are so baked into us because of our backgrounds, that's not gonna send you to hell. Do you understand? So don't be freaked out about that. Because there's only one thing that's gonna send us to hell, and that's rejecting Christ up to the very last moment of our last breath we take. That's what that's what does it. It's not these little things. Now, as I come across these things, I'd like to be challenged by them and I'd encourage you too, because it'll just pure it'll just sanctify you even further by thinking about these things and making changes. And we give glory to him when we do that, right? Because then I'm not putting my faith in some kind of causation, other causation. I'll be giving thanks and saying, Lord, you're the one who allowed this. You're the one who's responsible for the good things, the bad things, everything in between, Lord. You're responsible. You're guiding and directing. I don't quite understand it, but I know that you're a God. And I can trust you. Can you trust the Lord? Do you love him? If you love him, let's obey him. Let's obey the Lord and give our whole heart to him. Let him sanctify every area, every room. Is there a room somewhere in your heart that you're just like, Lord, I'll, I'll give you everything, but there's a few things that I'm just not ready. No, and he's not going to say, well, I'm done being your God then. He's not going to do that. He's going to be so patient with us. Sometimes he allows decades to go by. There are people, including myself, where I've had rooms that I've held the key and I've locked it away and I've hid the key. I thought I could hide it from God. I'd hide it. I'd hide the key and say, I'm not going to give that to you. And he's like, okay, Rob, I'll take what you got. Whatever you want to give to me, I'll take. And then there comes a day where he just starts to knock on the door of your heart and like, when are you going to give that up? Mm, I don't know. Not now. Okay. See in another five years. Five years goes by. Hey, Rob, what about that thing that you, that bitterness of heart that you've got towards so and so? Oh, Lord, you know, I've been stewing about that for years. I've never forgiven that person for what they did to me, what my relatives said to me. I've never forgotten it. And and at Christmas time and Thanksgiving, I just want to. And the Lord goes, Yeah, that's the thing I'm talking about, Rob. That's the thing. Why are you so bitter? Why are you so angry? Wasn't I gracious and loving to you when you were a rotten, nasty scoundrel? And I'll say, yes, Lord. He goes, no. Why can't you do the same? Why can't you love that person who has wronged you? It was their fault, and yet you know that there's a problem between the two of you. What does the Bible say? Even when somebody has done something wrong to you, And time goes by and you're still busted up with anger and frustration. Why don't you just go to them and say to them, you know what? 20 years ago, (laughs) you said this to me and it'll probably shock them. They're like, I did? Yeah, you said this and it really hurt me. And you know what? I've been holding a grudge all these years. And it's just been stunting my growth. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I tell you what, I've done that. And it does wonders to your relationship with the Lord first and with others. Is there anything, listen, as we come upon this Thanksgiving holiday, I want to challenge you with something. You're going to be around people that you have problems with. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Identify that big thorn in your flesh that you've got a problem with, somebody at that table, and sometime during that day, would you get alone with them and say, hey, i got to talk to you about something. You know, it's been a long time, but I want to tell you I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm here to tell you I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Or, you know, you said something to me a long time ago, and I want to tell you it really hurt me and give them an opportunity to remember. Cuz it's creating a problem between the two of you. Leave your altar at the you know, leave your gift at the altar. Go to your brother, get things right. That's what we're supposed to do, right? But do it. Get it right. Because you don't know how long you're going to be. You don't know how long that person's going to be around. Do it. Have the courage. Pray about it and then just do it. Is your your heart going to feel like it's up in your throat and your palms are going to be sweating? Maybe, but just do it. Be obedient and do the right thing. You're going to gain something out of it. It's going to be a blessing why don't we stand let's pray father we come before you we thank you lord for the exhortation in your word lord we thank you lord that your word doesn't sanitize these things even the superstition that we see um certainly all throughout the word of god at different times lord we see this in action lord it's not your fault it's it's the people it's all of us lord but Lord, forgive us for those times that we have put something else in your place. When we have said it must have been this, it must have been by chance, I just got lucky. It must have been a coincidence, Lord. May those things evaporate from our hearts and our minds. May the vocabulary terms just go from us, Lord. May we give all things and all glory to you. We thank you for tonight, Lord. And would you please, Lord, heal us, heal our land, protect us, God. Draw near to us. Bless this country. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.